Israel is rebuffing mounting calls for a ceasefire, saying all the hostages Hamas is holding need to be released first. The U.S. is pushing for a humanitarian halt in fighting. Coming up, a former Israeli Mossad agent tells us about the failure of intelligence that allowed for Hamas to attack Israel nearly one month ago. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a year before the 2024 election, House Democrats are focusing on targeting newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson as a foil as they aim to flip control of the chamber. And two years ago, a former detective tried to track down his uncle who'd gone missing decades earlier. He discovered his uncle had just recently died. I started looking to see if anyone knew him, someone who can give me a little bit of insight on how he died, but also how he lived. Where that journey led, coming up. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump's finished testifying in his own defense in a $250 million civil fraud trial in New York City. He emerged from the courtroom a short time ago. It's a scam, and this is a case that should have never been brought, and it's a case that now should be dismissed. Moments later, State Attorney General Letitia James said she would not be bullied. He falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to in- persistently engage in fraud. NPR's Jimena Bustillo has more on Trump's testimony today. There were some tense exchanges between the judge and Trump's legal team. Judge Goron at one point saying that he was beseeching the Trump team to, quote, control him on the stand. He felt that Trump was going on long speeches and tangents that included additional comments, not only about his properties at hand that he was being questioned on, but his own political current process, as we know he's running for president, but also how he thought the judge was politically motivated and how he thought the attorney general who brought this lawsuit against him is, quote, a hack. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reporting. The New York State AG says the court will hear testimony from Trump's eldest daughter, Ivanka Trump, on Wednesday. The Palestinian health ministry in Gaza says more than 10,000 people have died in just under four weeks of conflict between Israel and Hamas militants in Gaza. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports on this grim new marker of violence. The reported toll of 10,000 people now dead in Gaza doesn't distinguish between civilians and Hamas fighters, but health officials in Gaza say at least 4,100 of those are children. The Israeli offensive on Gaza comes in response to the surprise attack by Hamas fighters, who almost a month ago on October 7 infiltrated Israel and killed 1,400 people and took another 240 people hostage. Today, the heads of several major United Nations bodies made a united call for a humanitarian ceasefire, saying that amid the intense Israeli airstrikes, Gaza's population is being, quote, bombed in their homes, shelters, hospitals and places of worship. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. The father of the young man charged in last year's Independence Day mass shooting in suburban Chicago has pleaded guilty to seven counts of reckless conduct, one for each person his son, Robert Cremo III, allegedly killed in Highland Park. Robert Cremo Jr. had been looking at what could have been years behind bars for helping his teenage son obtain a gun license, even though his son had previously threatened violence. U.S. stocks end the day higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 34 points to settle at 34,095. This 
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The tents are now gone from the area of Boston known as Mass and Cass, and city officials are planning for what happens next. Dr. Bisola Ojikutu is the Commissioner of Public Health in Boston. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston that while Mass and Cass was the epicenter of homelessness and drug abuse, the problem is citywide. She says a recent state report shows Boston experienced a 36% increase in opioid-related deaths from 2019 to 2022. We have people who've been deferred from health care because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're really just now recouping that loss. So our goal going forward is to make sure that treatment equitable access to treatment is available to all people across the city if that is what they want. The commissioner says case management for people in need who formerly lived at Mass and Cass is critical. Young people who've experienced gun violence face increased rates of psychiatric and substance abuse disorders. That's according to a new study out of Mass General Hospital. Researchers compared rates of substance use and mental health diagnoses among thousands of young people who had been affected by gun violence with those who had not. Dr. Zuri Song of MGH helped lead the study. He says the research also documents opioid use among young survivors. We believe that it is likely that some of the opioids used to treat the pain from a firearm injury in the first place subsequently are leading to, uh, to opioid use disorders in the year after. The study also found parents of young gun violence survivors experience a more than 30 percent increase in psychiatric disorders. GE Aerospace is going to pay more than $9.4 million to resolve allegations that its Lynn manufacturing facility sold inadequate parts to the Army and Navy. The Office of the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says the parts were either not properly inspected or didn't meet the military's requirements. GE has admitted that the company did not use functional gauges to inspect certain parts and sold engines that contained unallowable metal fragments. A special agent for the Navy says the practice can pose a substantial threat to warfighter safety and readiness. WBR has reached out to GE for comment on the settlement. In the forecast, pretty heavy on the clouds right now. Overnight tonight, 50-50 chance of rain. Temperatures about the mid-40s. Then tomorrow could wake up to clouds, seeing sunshine later in the day. Those strong winds tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-60s. 49 degrees now in Boston at 407. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. 3,000. 3,000, that's the number of Hamas fighters who took part in the unprecedented attack on this country, Israel, one month ago. And that's what the IDF, Israel's military, tells NPR. Again, that number, 3,000 fighters, it puts into perspective the size of the intelligence failure that the October 7th attacks represent for security services here in Israel. And it prompts a question, why didn't they see it coming? Well, that's something we're going to put now to a woman who has held senior posts at the Israeli espionage agency Mossad. Seema Shine was head of research and analysis for Mossad. Today, we met her at a think tank tied to Tel Aviv University, the Institute for National Security Studies, where she works now. Israel has intelligence services that are famous around the world, has the most powerful military in the region, how did you not see it coming? Yeah, 
that's the question. Uh, probably I have only half uh, answers because uh, it's very difficult to, to explain. So let me say a word before. Mm -hmm. All the training that Hamas was doing in order to perform this uh, event was understood and was seen by, by the Israeli intelligence. And the question was, are they doing it in order just to be, uh, you know, you have an army, so you train it or it has to be accomplished for a date. And many, many small indications that were very close to the event were seen, but were explained as a routine. They're training, they're practicing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And there was a feeling, and here it comes to the conceptual failure, there was a feeling for some years, for many years, I would say, that uh, Hamas, uh, in spite of the fact that it's a terror organization, now it has responsibility for Gaza, and it has two million people, and they have to feed them, they have to uh, educate them and others. So they begin to be like, starting to be more, um, how should I say, more civilian uh, administration or something like that. I want to put this number to you that um, Israel's military has given NPR. They say the number of Hamas fighters who were involved on October 7th was 3,000. So a very large number of people who were read in on some part of this plan for Israeli intelligence not to know. This is coming and so it's the, an the answer to that is that, uh, and I, I think it's a correct answer, is that they have been training these people for a long time. Very uh, small number knew that it is going to be translated from a training into an operation. I would uh, guess that it's not more than one hand number of people that knew it. A specific question, and you may or may not be able to answer this, but um, I have seen reports that Israeli intelligence had stopped monitoring, for example, handheld radios used by Hamas because the volume of information was so huge compared to what Israel was getting from it. Is that true? Um, I, I think it's true. I heard it. I, I cannot confirm completely. But it makes but, sense uh, to you? It makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. And um, I've also seen that um, reports that Hamas has intentionally moved a lot of its communications into the tunnels, so mm -hmm. it's harder to eavesdrop on, even if you were trying. <laughs> we know that we have, to, have been trying because there was an operation some years ago that was revealed by Hamas, and this was the, the uh, aim of this operation. So we know it, that Israel tried to get to that. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it was much more difficult. You said there was no sense of urgency October 6th on the side of Israel. And I wonder, what about now? I reported on the CIA in the days and years after 9-11. And a large organization, I obviously can't speak for everyone, but I think fair to say there was a sense of being stunned, but then also a sense of the gloves come off. Yeah. As you speak to former colleagues, is, is that a similar conversation unfolding? First of all, there is a feeling of uh, we have to perform much better now because of the failure. The problem is that we have, uh, first of all, we are not concentrating only on one border on Gaza. We have the northern border which is a huge, huge problem, much... You're talking about Lebanon. Lebanon and Hezbollah, exactly. Uh, by any means, it's much more than, than Hamas. More soldiers, more equipped, better equipped, uh, precise missiles, all these things. 
So we have a huge problem there. And I think the uh, intelligence as well as, as the army are very much stretched on these two fronts. You know, we had a, a, an event with from Yemen, not one, many others, but uh, I don't know how these people can, um, how they sleep at night because it's, um, it's not by chance that you mentioned 9-11. It's such a traumatic feeling in Israel. In a way, it's more than that because um, at the end of the day, 9-11 was an event, ter terrible one, terrible, terrible, but it started and, and fi was finished. In, here, it doesn't, it doesn't finish. Last thing, you know, I came to see you today because of your vast national security experience, but I want people to know you're also a grandmother. Um, I don't know how old your grandkids are, but I wonder how you're talking to them about this moment, what your hopes are for them as you yeah. look at the future of this yeah. country. Um, yeah, that's the only issue that brings tears in my eyes because um, it's really very difficult. Now we are trying for the, since my granddaughters are small, we are trying to make it like um, a play. There is a there is a, an alarm, a siren. So we go now inside the shelter. When the air raid sirens yeah, go, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. We go to into the but but um, you know it's it could be a play during the day, but not during the nights when they are asleep, and they understand that something is happening. If their parents not I being their parents, I take him them from the beds and go to the shelter. They understand that it's something different. Sima Shine, thank you. Thank you. She is a former senior official at Mossad and on Israel's National Security Council and now runs the Iran desk here at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. A year from now, Americans will head to the polls and decide control of the House of Representatives. Newly elected Republican Speaker Mike Johnson will be expected to raise millions and drive the strategy that will ensure the GOP retains its majority in 2024. But Democrats already say Johnson's record will be an issue in the election. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Democrats see an opportunity to make Speaker Mike Johnson a central part of their strategy to flip control of the House. We may have a new face, um, but the extremism is still there. In fact, he may be even more extreme. That's Susan Del Bene, the head of the House Democrats' campaign committee. She says voters may not know who Johnson is, but thinks the more people learn, the more it could be a liability for Republicans in swing districts across the country. So while he may be unknown to folks. I think a lot is coming out every day about where he stands and how extreme he is. You know, as someone who wanted to overturn the 2020 election, someone who wants to see a nationwide abortion ban, someone who wants to cut Social Security and Medicare. Republicans ran ads for years linking vulnerable Democrats to then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's San Francisco values are wrong for America. But GOP strategist Ken Spain says it's hard for Democrats to do that for Johnson. He is an unknown quantity to the vast majority of American voters. He's less defined and therefore is not a political vulnerability, at least not yet. Spain says the new speaker faces pressure to avoid any hint of the drama that led to his election. The one way the speaker can become a political vulnerability is if the majority cannot function. And we've already gotten a taste of that over the course of the last several weeks. If that continues to spill into 2024, it could become incredibly problematic. Spain says previous GOP speakers had much closer ties to CEOs. That was a key asset in raising big dollars. 
but Johnson seems to have close ties with the grassroots. The speaker raised $1 million in just the first weekend after he won the gavel. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy raised about $500 million in the last election. John Duarte, who represents a competitive district in California, says Johnson has big shoes to fill. Kevin McCarthy was by far the king of Republican fundraising. I don't know that we can expect the same out of Mike Johnson right away, but he's done a great job. His, his acceptance speech, his interviews, I mean, he's a very likable guy. The battle for the House will take place in roughly 60 of the 435 House districts. Mike Garcia is another California Republican in a top-tier race, and he admits Johnson is further to the right than he is. He's more conservative than, than many are in the conference. Um, so his personal positions on the things don't matter as much as what does the legislative uh, agenda look like and, and what are the things that we're going to be bringing to the floor. Nebraska Congressman Don Bacon, a moderate, says what a lot of other centrists say. They downplay Johnson's positions on issues, but say his tone will connect with voters. His message is unifying, it's positive, it's not demonizing the other side. Another vulnerable Republican, Mark Molinaro from New York, says Johnson says his new role as speaker means he will include input from more moderates in deciding the agenda. You know, we, we're going to have differences, but what he assured me and, and what was very convincing for me is that members like me and voices like those I represent will be at the table as we develop policy, and that's what's important. But Del Bene says Democrats want to make sure voters don't see Johnson as a kinder, softer, more moderate speaker. They'll spend the next year trying to paint him and every Republican as an extremist. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Last week on Wall Street, uh, the Dow had its, or, or Wall Street that is, had its best week of the year, and today they held on to the gains. The Dow rose a tenth of a percent, S&P gained two tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq picked up three tenths of a percent. Listings of luxury homes in greater Boston are bucking other home trends in the area. According to real estate firm Redfin, luxury listings rose about six and a half percent in the third quarter of the year compared to the same period last year. All other home listings fell more than 30 percent in that time. Redfin says the, actuary, uh, the average luxury home price in Eastern Mass is two and a quarter million dollars. The average non-luxury single-family home sale price is $850,000. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. And Stepping Stone, for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at steppingstone.org. Mainly cloudy skies this afternoon and this evening. Overnight tonight could have some showers. Not too much cooler than it is right now. Should be about 47 overnight. Tomorrow clouds to start, then sunshine works its way in before long. Windy and warmer could reach the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. 
gained the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash gradprograms. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. When you get news alerts all day long, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Abortion rights has been on the ballot in seven states since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. In each instance, anti-abortion groups lost. Voters in Ohio are now considering an amendment that could enshrine abortion and other reproductive rights into the state's constitution. Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls has the story. It's hard to spend much time in Ohio these days without hearing two words. Extreme or radical. Radical amendment. Extreme. Extreme abortion ban. Too extreme and radical. Supporters of reproductive rights use those words to describe a six-week ban on abortion that's on hold by courts. Opponents use those words when they talk about the proposed amendment. Ohio was once considered a bellwether state, but after voting for former President Donald Trump twice and consistently electing Republicans to control the legislature and the Ohio Supreme Court, the Buckeye State is solidly red these days. Still, polls consistently show somewhere around 56 percent of Ohioans support at least some abortion rights. In recent weeks, the Ohio State House has been ground zero for rallies. Supporters say it's a decision that should be made by people, not politicians. Opponents, including church leaders, say the government does have a role. They've been gathering for protests, prayers, and praise. Tens of millions have been spent on ads for the amendment, including one featuring Beth and Kyle Long, a Columbus couple who went to Pennsylvania for an abortion for a complicated pregnancy. They spoke to NPR shortly after arriving in pouring rain to cast a vote for the amendment during the month of early in-person voting. I think it's important for us to make sure that Nobody else here in Ohio has to go through what we went through. Republican Governor Mike DeWine and his wife Fran appeared in an ad against the amendment. Issue one is just not right for Ohio. Issue one just goes too far. Some of the most controversial action being taken is inside the state house. In August, Republican lawmakers put a measure before voters that would make it harder to amend Ohio's constitution. It failed. 
Then the Ohio ballot board, controlled by Republicans who oppose abortion rights, approved contentious summary language that voters will see on the ballot. It's led by Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who's running in the GOP primary for Senate next year. That language omitted a part about birth control and changed the word fetus to unborn child. I voted three to two. The motion carries and the language is approved for... Opponents sued. The Republican-dominated Ohio Supreme Court, which includes justices who are openly against abortion rights, allowed those changes to stand. Recently, the governor promised voters if they reject this amendment, Republicans would come up with an exception for rape and incest in Ohio's abortion ban that he signed into law in 2019. The vast majority of people in Ohio feel that there needs to be an exception for rape and incest. So that certainly will be part of what together we would all come up with if this is defeated. But that's a tough sell to supporters of the amendment, like Lauren Blavelt with Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights. The governor and other politicians have had a decade to have a conversation about what would be reasonable. The former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, says DeWine's promise shows his desperation, but might be having an impact. I do think it's closer overall because I think there's been a lot of disinformation, a lot of this talk about uh, that you hear from the governor and others about it being too much. I think that's actually having some impact. Legislative leaders say regardless of what happens on Tuesday, they'll likely take some other actions to change Ohio's abortion policy in the future, including the possibility of another constitutional amendment. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Laura Eshelman. In 2012, Eshelman was in the middle of a mental health spiral. The love of her life had just dumped her, and she was struggling with an eating disorder. To top it all off, she was having trouble finding work. One day, after being rejected for yet another job, she encountered an unexpected unsung hero. I was feeling pretty down and decided to go to the Whole Foods across the street. As I was crossing the street, I noticed a man on the street corner. He was actually in the middle of asking a passerby for change who didn't so much as acknowledge his existence. And as I approached, he turned his attention to me and again asked if he could have a little bit of money. I don't remember what my response was to him, and I'm glad that I don't remember, because what I do recall is whatever I said was very unkind and harsh, something to the tune of, leave me the hell alone, I don't have anything to give you, just bug off. With that, I sauntered into the grocery store and began perusing the aisles but the interaction had left me a little distracted and rattled for reasons I couldn't quite put my finger on until the realization of how rude and awful I had been to this person hit me like an anvil. I remember thinking, what the hell have you become? Who are you? I dropped everything I was doing and left the store quickly in the hopes that the man was still on the corner, which he was, 
And I hustled over to him, began apologizing profusely and dug out some change that had, of course, been at the bottom of my pocket the whole time. And as I was handing him the change, he took my hand in both of his hands. I remember they were very large and rough and it took me by surprise, actually. And he said, hey, it's gonna be okay. And for the first time in a long time, I felt like somebody was seeing my own pain and I started to cry. We just stood there for a few more moments and I thanked him and we parted ways. That moment on the street was one of few glimmers in that extremely dark period of my life. That was Laura Eshelman of Asheville, North Carolina. Laura says she eventually checked herself into a program to treat her eating disorder and started rebuilding her life. She wishes that she could thank her unsung hero for being so kind. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. And if you are in psychological distress, whether from an eating disorder or for any other reason, you can dial 988 to speak with counselors at the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. And Delta Dental. Reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Scott Tong. After the United Auto Workers succeeded in getting big pay raises from the big three automakers, a look at the union and its firebrand leader, Sean Fain. We're thinking together about the core question of the labor movement. How do working class people build the power we need to win what we deserve? That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. As Israel continues its ground and air assaults on Hamas targets, at least 10,000 people are reported dead by the Gaza Health Ministry. This comes as the U.N. Secretary warns that Gaza is becoming a, quote, graveyard for children. The United Nations says that 48 of their shelters have been damaged since Israel's counteroffensive against Hamas began a month ago. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres continues to call for a ceasefire, saying hundreds of boys and girls are being killed or injured every day in Gaza. Emotions are at a fever pitch. Tensions are running high and the images of suffering are heartbreaking and soul-crushing. But we must find a way to hold on to our common humanity. 
The Secretary General says the U.N. is trying to raise more than $1 billion for humanitarian aid, and he's calling for protection of civilians and the unconditional release of hostages in Gaza who were captured by Hamas. The father of a young man accused of committing a mass shooting in uh, Chicago last year is pleading guilty to reckless conduct. Patrick Smith, a member station WBEZ, reports. Robert Cremo III allegedly killed seven people and wounded 48 others during a 4th of July parade in 2022. Prosecutors charged his father, Robert Cremo Jr., with seven felony counts for helping his son get a gun permit. The father was set to go on trial, but in a deal with prosecutors, he pleaded guilty to seven misdemeanor counts and will spend 60 days in jail. Prosecutor Eric Reinhardt says he hopes the case will serve as a model for going after the parents of shooters who help their children obtain guns. We've laid down a marker to other prosecutors, to other police in this country, to other parents, that they must be held accountable. An attorney for the elder Cremo says he pleaded guilty to spare the community from reliving these tragic events. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Attorney's Office today announced the largest seizure of drugs from a single location in the history of Massachusetts. WBUR's Arena Machavariani reports that officials say the deadly narcotics had a street value of $8 million. The FBI's North Shore Gang Task Force seized more than 200 pounds of fentanyl, methamphetamine, and other drugs from a house in Lynn. Jody Cohen, a special FBI agent in Boston, says some of the drugs were disguised as heart-shaped Valentine's Day candy. She says it's common practice among drug dealers and can be fatal for young people. If you or your loved one are buying pills off the street or getting them from a friend or from anywhere that is not a pharmacy or physician, it might not be what you think it is. Authorities also seized firearms and cash from the scene. Three men are charged in connection with an alleged drug ring. They will appear in federal court next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majawadiani. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is trying to make it easier for hospitals to discharge some patients more quickly. The state's largest health insurer is removing the requirement that patients get prior authorization to receive home health care services. That means they can continue treatment at home sooner. The home services include physical and occupational therapy and nurse and social worker visits. The change takes effect January 1st. Blue Cross says the change will eliminate 14,000 authorizations from the health care system. Governor Moore Healy is welcoming members of two new advisory councils. One council is focused on veteran services, the other on women veterans. Healy swore in the 48 new council members in a ceremony at the Statehouse today. It's a collective moral responsibility and duty we owe to support and honor those who sacrifice on our behalf. If we want to support families and seniors, we have to make sure that veterans have access to all the benefits they deserve. Earlier this year, Healy created a new cabinet position focused on veterans affairs. It is 434. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston is Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah, three performances November 24th through 26th. Handelandhyden.org. Should stay cloudy through the evening hours. Rain possible overnight tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Almost there right now, in fact. Then it gets milder tomorrow and chillier by midweek. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s. Wednesday should only reach 48. Should see some sunshine both days. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, 
working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Heart Island is a mile-long strip of land in the waters off of New York City. Since 1869, more than a million people have been buried there in mass graves with no headstones. Today, we continue a series from Radio Diaries called The Unmarked Graveyard. Each story untangles mysteries about people buried in America's largest public cemetery. Neil Harris was last seen in Inwood, New York on December 12th. There were thousands of questions. Where's his people? You can't help but wonder what her life has been. Two years ago, a former detective named Angel Irizarry set out on a personal investigation to track down an uncle who'd been missing from his family for decades. But early in his search, he discovered that his uncle, Caesar, had died. This is his story. All right, this is um, Angel Irizarry. I just received the death certificate of my uncle, Caesar. It says the date of death was July 19th, 2020, which would have made Uncle Caesar 64 years old. And it says place of disposition is City Cemetery at Hart Island. Everything else pretty much says unknown. The usual occupation unknown and parents are unknown. But the truth of the matter is he does have family and he did have family. Uncle Caesar was estranged from our family, I would say, about 40 to 50 years. I'm 45 years old, and i only seen him one time. I think I was probably about six or seven, sitting on the floor playing with toys at my grandparents' house. And then there was this tall, dark gentleman standing at the door I looked and was like, who the heck are you? You know, you look like my dad, close to a spitting image, and I have never seen you before. I think I went to my dad and was like, you know, who is this guy? My dad was like, that's your Uncle Caesar. But after that, I never seen him again. From that point forward, I was asking questions like, well, where is he? How come I don't see this guy? My aunts and even my grandparents wouldn't want to speak a word of who Uncle Caesar was. My father did finally sit me down and told me that when Uncle Caesar was about 21, 22, he was hanging out with a very bad crowd who used to drink a lot. One day he came to the house asking my grandfather for money and my grandfather was very mad at him because he was drunk and Uncle Caesar punched my grandfather and then my grandfather told him that he was banished from the family forever. It's sad, man. Sad. I know it's sad for me. I start, you know, relating to him more as a teenager. I was getting into some things that have to do with gangs, drugs, alcohol, to the point that 
I got kicked out of my house. But I became the man that I am now because of my father and the family who stood by my side. And I believe that Uncle Caesar, he was a man who needed to be forgiven just like I need to be forgiven. And now that he's gone, I started looking to see if anyone knew him, someone who can give me a little bit of insight on how he died, but also how he lived. Okay, so um, today, me and my wife, we just drove from Virginia to the Bronx, New York. We're going to the last place where Caesar lived before he passed. We were able to locate his roommate who he lived with. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah. So I am the nephew of Cesar Irizarry. My name is William Calderon. I lived with Cesar Irizarry, I think, five, six, seven years. My mom and I, we rent out rooms uh, so we can make rent. And he came and rented out a small room. Would you consider him a good man? Of course, great person. The only thing is that when he started drinking, he would become someone else. But, you know, he was good to me and my mom. We would talk, we would chat. He would talk to me about his family. He would say that he had a family, but he wasn't in touch with any of them. And he said he knew he was the one who messed up uh, with his family, and he was the one that strayed away. Did he pass away in this house? Do you know when he passed? I remember it like it was today. It was July 4th, and he went out as, as usual to drink. And then from the park, they called the ambulance because he couldn't stand up or walk or handle himself. When I got the call from the hospital, I was told his organs started failing. They asked me if I wanted to, to say anything to him over the phone. And I told him, Cesar, remember there's a God and that I'm with you. And I couldn't continue speaking with him because I started tearing up and I couldn't say anything else. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. This whole situation really shows you that time is short and you don't have time to hold grudges. Let me tell you something that might give you some peace. He wasn't with his own family, but I can tell you that he was loved. He would even tell us, my mom and I, you're my family. When he passed away, uh, they called me from the hospital asking, what should they do with his body? And I told him that he himself, while he was alive, told me for the government to take care of it. I don't even know where they buried him. Test one, two, one, two. We are here at the beginning of the ferry to go to Hart Island. He's more alive to me now. He's more alive to me now because I walked in the place where he walked. I talked to the people he talked to. Oh, this is it. And I wanted to 
to speak with him. But Uncle Caesar, we're here. I wish I could have known you more, but I never forgot about you. And everything that we have done as a family against you, we ask for forgiveness and everything that you have done against us, we forgive you. Until we meet again, Uncle Caesar, God bless you, Dios bendiga, in Jesus' name, amen. The story was produced by Elisa Escarce, Daniel Gross, Tyler Brady, and the team at Radio Diaries. To hear more stories from the unmarked graveyard, visit the Radio Diaries podcast. This is NPR News. Republican Jeff Landry will be Louisiana's next governor, making a huge win for Republicans. It was a surprise upset for the Democratic Party, which has held the office for the past eight years and acted as a counterbalance against a majority Republican legislature. Molly Ryan with member station WRKF in Baton Rouge has more. Louisiana has an open primary, which means that usually the top two candidates, regardless of party, advance to the general election, unless a single candidate wins more than 50 percent of the primary vote. Landry, who's been the attorney general since 2016, won about 52 percent, avoiding the need for a runoff. He celebrated his resounding victory at a watch party on election night. And it's a wake-up call. It's a message that everyone should hear loud and clear. But at the polls, Landry's loud and clear message sounded more like this. That's the sound of silence. A lot of people didn't vote for Landry because they didn't vote at all. Estimated turnout was the lowest it's been in a gubernatorial primary in a dozen years, at just 36 percent. And turnout was especially low in blue strongholds like New Orleans, where just over a quarter of registered voters cast ballots. And that meant that Landry was able to win the governorship outright with less than 20 percent of all registered voters voting for him. Brian Brocks, a professor of political science at Tulane University, said several factors played a part in the low turnout. One is a lack of mobilization. In Orleans Parish, there was a noticeable absence of Democratic Party mobilization and turnout in, in among key demographic groups was, was relatively low. Compared to the state's last gubernatorial primary in 2019, turnout was especially down among registered Democrats and Black Louisianans. Brock said another factor of the low turnout is that this election happened in an off year with no presidential or congressional elections. And he said there was a sense of inevitability. Landry had long been the frontrunner, according to almost every poll, and he outfundraised the other candidates by millions of dollars. Many voters might have seen the writing on the wall. When voters sense that elections don't necessarily matter, they don't go out of their way to vote. Democrat Sean Wilson, Landry's main challenger, had been expected to at least make it to a runoff with Landry, but he only grabbed 26 percent of the vote. That set off alarms for both state and national Democratic figures. I never saw any kind of plan by that party. That's Bruce Riley. He's a registered independent. As the deputy director of a voting rights organization, he pays close attention to elections. Riley said the Democratic Party here is in disarray, and the election left him questioning the party's identity in the state. I mean, the Democratic Party elsewhere in America is known as one of reproductive justice and, and women's rights in, in that realm. But in Louisiana, that's not the case. And I think that is something that probably really waters down their unity. Since the defeat, several state Democratic figures have called on the party chair to step down. Cedric Richmond, a former Louisiana lawmaker and current advisor to the Democratic National Party, said the Louisiana Democratic Party needs to go back to the drawing board. I just think that the state party has to get together and decide what direction it wants to go in. We have to inspire voters to show up. 
The path forward for Louisiana Democrats, he said, should include increasing registration and mobilization. Republicans are also poised to sweep most, if not all, other statewide seats and maintain a supermajority in the state's legislature. If no Democratic candidate wins a statewide election in mid-November, Republicans will have total control of state government, shifting this already red state even further to the right. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ryan in Baton Rouge. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, former President Donald Trump testified in his civil fraud trial in New York today. In sometimes contentious exchanges, he reiterated his position that the case against him is politically motivated. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. Oceanstatejoblot.com. It's a busy night in sports with both the Bruins and Celtics in action. The Bruins will be in Dallas to take on the Stars. FaceTime is 8 p.m. Celtics look to stay unbeaten this season. Tonight they take on the Timberwolves in Minnesota. Game also gets underway at 8 o'clock. And the forecast should stay cloudy overnight tonight. Rain possible, lows in the mid-40s. And then it gets milder tomorrow. Should have some sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Wednesday, sunshine again, but only reaching about 48 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy skies in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. In some parts of the country, juvenile crime is making headlines. A new era of somewhat vilifying young people is upon us. And so we also need to step up, all of us together. How can you keep kids from getting into trouble and getting into the system? Michelle Martin's series on juvenile justice continues tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. It has been a month since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Many Israelis are now calling for a sweeping prisoner exchange to free the hundreds of hostages taken captive last month during the Hamas attack on Israel. This comes as Israel's ground operations and bombing campaigns in Gaza grind on. The Ministry of Health in Gaza now reports more than 10,000 deaths, including thousands of women and children. Israel is still under rocket fire, and Israel says its goal is to eliminate Hamas and rescue the hostages. But a prisoner swap could be another option. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been talking with relatives of some of those hostages and reports from downtown Tel Aviv. This is Israeli military headquarters in central Tel Aviv, where Israel's war cabinet is conducting the war on Gaza. And it's also where Israelis are rallying in support of the about 240 captives held hostage by Hamas inside Gaza. Here's a bus driver beeping his support. One man has been sitting outside Israeli military headquarters every day. 
My name is Shmuel Brodach. My three grandchildren and my daughter-in-law are now in Gaza. His grandchildren in Gaza are four, eight, and ten years old. They're held hostage along with other children, parents, grandparents, Israeli soldiers, and foreign nationals. So far, Hamas has released four hostages through Qatar's mediation. The U.S. says talks are now focused on securing a significant pause in hostilities to allow for a large hostage release. The only way to bring them back safe is to have a deal. If the army will go to freedom, a big percentage of them will be dead. I don't want to get my grandchildren back as corpses. Israeli ground troops did free one hostage, but Hamas is believed to be holding many hostages in underground chambers, where it would be hard for soldiers to rescue them. So what would a hostage release deal look like? Hamas has called for a big prisoner exchange. Israel says no such deal is on the table. But there is growing support for one in Israel. Brodach holds a poster that says, all in exchange for all, meaning Israel releasing all its Palestinian prisoners and Hamas releasing all its hostages. Brodach supports any kind of deal that brings the hostages home. That is the only victory that can be done. Israel was defeated. I want the Israeli authorities to pay any price that is needed to get them back now. There is precedent for a prisoner swap. Twelve years ago, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed to release more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners for a kidnapped Israeli soldier. A prisoner swap now could be even bigger, Israel releasing all its Palestinian prisoners, about 6,700 inmates, being held on what are called security offenses, including hundreds serving life sentences for the killing of Israeli civilians and soldiers over the decades. Across the street from military headquarters is an office building where there's a massive advocacy effort by the main group representing family and friends of the Israeli hostages. They've been careful not to adopt an official position on how Israel should secure their release. You know, we're not busy telling government or any other officials how to do that. Shiri Grossbard has a colleague held hostage. We just want them home. When troops entered Gaza, the families demanded an immediate meeting with Netanyahu. They worried the ground operation could endanger the hostages. Now, the idea of a prisoner exchange is being touted even by a hawkish former defense minister and by a growing number of the families of hostages. Of course. Definitely. Definitely. Shelly and Malki Shemtov have a son, Omer, who just turned 21 in Hamas captivity. Even if it means, like... All of the prisoners. All of the prisoners, On both sides. On both sides, yes, definitely. A recent Israeli opinion poll found nearly two-thirds support a prisoner exchange. Another poll found split opinions, but no overwhelming opposition. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Yochanan Plesner runs the nonpartisan Israel Democracy Institute, which conducted the surveys. We have never dealt with such a situation of so many Israeli hostages, so many youngsters, kids that are held in captivity. Time is of the essence. So I think Israelis will be willing to go very far in order to get them released, short of one important goal. It's not instead of dismantling Hamas. One Israeli family has been outspoken in opposing a prisoner exchange. Emunah Nisim Libman has a brother held in Gaza. In a video, she says, I miss my brother with all my heart, but we know that a ceasefire and prisoner exchange are destructive for our children's future. She says it could lead to another October 7th-style attack. One of the released prisoners in Israel's last swap with Hamas 12 years ago 
is now the head of Hamas in Gaza, whom Israel accuses of helping mastermind last month's attack. Some Israelis we meet outside military headquarters have their own proposal, Michal Barkai and Sarah Tal. You, you will yes. let them go from the prison to Gaza and then we'll kill them in Gaza. We continue the war. And they should go. This weekend, family and friends of the hostages demonstrated outside army headquarters. Chanting now, 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 saying the release of hostages should be the first priority. Tsipi Khaitovsky has friends whose siblings are being held in Gaza. You know, the government promises that they'll destroy Hamas. That's not enough. The number one task now is to first bring home our people from Gaza. It's unclear how Israel can pursue its two goals, getting hostages released safely and eviscerating the very group holding them. What is clear is that many Israelis are open to any kind of deal with Hamas to secure the captives' freedom. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Elsewhere on the show today, you can hear reporting from our colleague Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. She speaks with a woman who spent most of her career in the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad about the October 7th Hamas attacks and the parallels to 9-11 in the United States. At the end of the day, 9-11 was an event, terrible one, but it started and, and was finished. Here, it doesn't, it doesn't finish. And we will hear her conversation with an American citizen who spent 26 days trapped in Gaza. But this is different. This is not just a war. This is more than a war. Both those conversations elsewhere in the show today. In 1976, some college students decided to form a music group. Not so remarkable, but these Juilliard students? Well, they had some serious staying power. The Emerson String Quartet is one of modern history's most durable, beloved, and prolific chamber ensembles. We've divided the whole quartet repertoire just about as equally as we could. And after nearly 50 years, 40-some albums, nine Grammys, and countless concerts, the band played one of its last performances at NPR's Tiny Desk. It's a very uh, intense, emotional time, but uh, anyway, life goes on. Just two days after their Tiny Desk concert, the quartet played its final performance in New York, where their journey began. The tape you've heard here is from that Tiny Desk concert. That full video is out today. Watch it on npr.org music. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR, checking the forecast heavy on the clouds this evening and overnight tonight. 
Likely we'll have some rain overnight, temperatures in the mid-40s. Then tomorrow we could wake up to clouds, but sunshine should move in for the bulk of the day. Strong winds tomorrow and milder temperatures in the mid-60s. Wednesday may not make it out of the 50s, and it should be sunny, though, with winds once again. This is WBUR. Cloudy skies in Boston, 48 degrees. The time is 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Combative talk in court today from Donald Trump. The former president took a stand in his civil fraud trial. The judge reprimanded both Trump and his lawyers. One of the lawyers spoke to reporters outside the classroom. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can stand up and say something when they see something wrong. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also today, hundreds of foreign nationals have been allowed to cross out of Gaza into Egypt. That number includes Americans. We'll speak with one of them. The FDA recently determined that the country's leading decongestant is ineffective, but experts say there may be more reviews of over-the-counter medicines to come. Also, the third act are profiles of people who have reinvented themselves later in life. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.N. Secretary General is describing Gaza as a graveyard for children and says it is time for humanitarian truce. As NPR's Michelle Kelman explains, the Biden administration wants to see pauses in the fighting. but says Israel has the right to go after Hamas, which is still holding hostages and firing rockets in Israel. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says right now no one is safe in Gaza in a conflict he called an agonizing dead end of destruction. He said all parties need to respect humanitarian law. This means the unconditional release of the hostages in Gaza now. The protection of civilians, hospitals, U.N. facilities, shelters and schools now. He says more U.N. aid workers have been killed in the past month in Gaza than in any comparable period in the history of the United Nations. A White House spokesman says the U.S. will continue to push for temporary localized pauses in fighting to allow more aid to get into Gaza. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Donald Trump took the standard as civil fraud trial in New York today with the sparks flying almost immediately. The judge overseeing the case at one point chiding the former president admonishing him to keep his answers short. Outside the courtroom, New York Attorney General Letitia James, who accuses Trump of misstating the value of his assets to obtain better business deals, said she was not surprised. He rambled. He hurled insults. um, But we expected that. At the end of the day, um, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. The judge overseeing the civil trials already found Trump as adult sons and 10 of his companies liable for fraud in terms of property valuations. What's being determined now is whether hundreds of millions in fines and other penalties should be imposed. 
The nation's busiest rail corridor is getting a major cash infusion. NPR's Joel Rose reports President Biden announced more than $16 billion in improvements to the Northeast Corridor today. President Biden commuted on the train from his home in Delaware to Washington for decades. And he went back to Delaware to an Amtrak maintenance facility to announce billions of dollars in funding for passenger rail. We're announcing historic investment in America's railroads. I've been talking about this for a long time, I know. But finally, finally we're getting it done. The more than $16 billion comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law to repair and replace aging bridges and tunnels. The projects will address some major choke points on the heavily traveled Northeast Corridor between Washington, D.C. and Boston. The White House says that will lead to faster and more reliable service, though some of the projects will take many years to complete. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. After last week's strong showing, modest gains on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 34 points, the Nasdaq rose 40 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three Lynn men face charges related to the state's largest ever drug bust from a single location. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Massachusetts announced today that more than 200 pounds of methamphetamine, fentanyl, and other drugs were seized from a house in Lynn last week. Officials say that's equivalent to 10 million doses of illegal drugs with an estimated street value of $8 million. Federal prosecutors allege the suspects are part of a large-scale drug trafficking enterprise. Massachusetts State Auditor Diana DeZoglio was pushing back against claims that her office doesn't have the legal authority to audit the state legislature. Last week, State Attorney General Andrea Campbell said there is no precedent that gives DeZoglio the wide-ranging review she's proposing. DeZoglio disagrees. She tells WBUR the auditor's office has previously audited the state more than 100 times. It is our opinion that the 117 audits our office has conducted throughout the years since the inception of the auditor's office demonstrate clear precedent. DeZoglio says she's pushing to get the issue onto the 2024 state ballot. City and federal officials representing Boston are helping government and nonprofit workers learn more about the public service loan forgiveness program. Throughout the day, staff will help eligible student loan borrowers enroll in income-driven repayment plans. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says people who took out loans to go to school and give back to the community shouldn't be punished for borrowing that money. While the Supreme Court continues to make decisions that are completely out of step with the will of the people by blocking the Biden-Harris administration's debt relief program, we have a team here who have been working with incredible creativity, persistence, and ingenuity to still find ways to lighten the load for Massachusetts residents and families. The event is meant to help borrowers find loan relief, while members of the state's congressional delegation push for national student loan forgiveness. UMass Lowell is among the top women-led organizations in the state, according to a newly compiled ranking by the nonprofit organization The Women's Edge. UMass Lowell was ranked 17th overall and was the highest-ranked educational institution on the list. Julie Chen is UMass Lowell's chancellor. She has led the school since last summer. 48 degrees now in Boston should be just about where it is right now in terms of temperatures overnight tonight. It is 48 degrees, right about that for a low tonight. Winds picking up, and tomorrow we should have a gray start, then sunshine later on. Still windy, temperatures in the mid to upper 60s tomorrow. Again, 48 in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. 
Things got heated in a New York courtroom today as former President Donald Trump testified in the $250 million civil fraud trial brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Trump repeatedly defended the property valuations a judge has already determined were fraudulent. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in the courtroom and joins us now. Hey there. Good afternoon. Andrea, I mean, we have a once and possibly future president testifying in a court of law. So, I mean, I I have to start by asking you, what was that like? So about as strange as you might think. It's a big courtroom, but a small room for the former president. And it's the one kind of room he doesn't get to control, though he tried mightily. We have all heard him speak a lot, but not under oath, publicly in real time. And when he did, Trump kept being admonished for not answering questions. Instead, he said things to Kevin Wallace, the assistant attorney general who was questioning him, like, quote, you sued me on the basis Trump had no money, and he wrote phony statements, even though they were represented by the best lawyers, there was no victim. He meant to claim no one was harmed, which doesn't matter under New York law. Pretty early on in the day, the judge said to Trump's lawyers, can you control your client? This is not a political rally. This is a courtroom with a trial over New York business law, 6312. Okay, to that end, what did we learn today? The main substance of the day were the statements of financial condition and Trump's role in putting them together. Trump repeatedly said, yeah, he saw them, but he barely remembered them. They were so old. But he did remember very clearly one part, the disclaimer, which he calls a worthless clause, meaning lenders should check his work. Trump had mentioned this clause over a dozen times. At one point, he pulled out a folded piece of paper from his pocket with presumably the disclaimer on it and asked, Your Honor, can I read it? When the judge said no, Trump said no shock. Hmm, Okay. And what was Trump's role in setting the values of those properties we're talking about? He kept saying it was minimal. He left it up to his staff and his accountants. But he also said, I am probably an expert more than anyone else on values. And his judgment was always that his beautiful properties could command top dollar and therefore were worth more than he claimed. Take Mar-a-Lago. Trump bought it about 20 years ago for $18 million. By about a decade ago, documents placed the value at over $400 million. A golf course in Aberdeen, Scotland, jumped over $200 million in value one year, even though Trump had not made promised improvements. He hasn't to this day. 40 Wall Street lost money year over year. But at one point, Trump told a Wall Street Journal reporter there was an appraisal for $600 million for that building when there was no such appraisal, etc. You mentioned earlier that the judge was trying to keep control of the courtroom, asserting that this was a trial and not a political rally, which leads me to believe that the former president did not exactly stick to the topic at hand, correct? Yeah. So an issue was whether there was a conspiracy and how much of the $250 million the AG is asking for. At one point, the assistant AG asked, said, you do not agree with the Office of Attorney General. Your statements of financial condition are inaccurate. Trump's answer, how do you value against somebody and call him a fraud when as president of the United States, he did a great job referring to the AG who was sitting in the front row. He said, quote, the fraud is her. In a sentence or two, what comes next? Ivanka Trump testifies on Wednesday. The AG will rest its case. The defense case will go to December 15th if they don't succeed in getting their motion for a mistrial. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thanks. Thank you. Not enough journalists on the ground, and frequent phone and internet blackouts have meant it's been hard to get a clear picture of what life is like for people in Gaza. 
That picture is becoming a little more clear now that some foreign nationals have been allowed to cross from Gaza into Egypt. One of them is 65-year-old Qasem Ali. From Gaza, I grew up in the village called Beit Hanun, which is now almost wiped out. Qasem is a journalist, studied in America. In 1997, he got U.S. citizenship. He is also a citizen of Malta. Over a Zoom call, he told me he was visiting his mother. She's about 90 years old. In northern Gaza, two miles or so from the border with Israel, when, on October 7th, Hamas insurgents crossed the border into Israel, killing more than 1,400 people, taking more than 200 others hostage. The morning the war began, Qasim was up on the rooftop garden of his family home. You know, I love gardening, so I have nice garden roof. And, you know, I wake up, I hear the missiles going, you know. The missiles, yeah. Former journalist, I pick up the mobile phone and started filming. That video shows a beautiful, lush garden full of plants and birds chirping. A stunning sunrise, and then explosions, one after another. They were close. So I figured out it will be serious. So I, I decided to take a shower before Israelis. It's crazy, but that's the reality, you know. Uh, so I took a shower quickly because I don't want to be dying while I'm naked, you know. So I collect my handbag. After I shower, pick up my mother, the old mother, and went to Gaza. They fled to Gaza City, to his sister's apartment. Then, you know, like the bombardment went after us. The missiles followed them. So they fled again. I asked him, what day was that? You don't know this, my friend. You don't know. It is Monday or a Friday or all the days is the same. So you, yeah. if you ask me now, you know, after I left, what's the date? I don't know. That's the life of war, especially this war. I have been covering all the wars in Gaza, but this is different. This is not just a war. This is more than a war. This is more than a war. But despite all this, despite the violence, despite not knowing what day it is, despite being a U.S. citizen, Qasem told me he didn't think about trying to leave. Not at first. I want to stay with my sister and my mother. But then I managed to talk to my daughter. She's 13 years old, Nadia. His 13-year-old daughter, Nadia. She lives in Canada. And I couldn't, you know, die without seeing her. So then I decided to leave. He didn't hear anything from the American government, even after he registered as a citizen trying to leave. But it was his American passport that got him out. Oh, no, the American passport. Through the Rafah crossing into Egypt this past Friday. He says then they were all put on a bus for hours, lots of checkpoints, searches, until eventually he got to Cairo Saturday morning and was put up in a hotel. The only thing I want to do is just to have a shower for 26 <laughs> days. You don't even wash your face or brush your teeth and in the same clothes. He finally took a shower, his first since that morning the war began at his family home in northern Gaza 26 days earlier. So you're speaking to us now from Cairo. Yes. But you can't stay there. You're going to have to move on to Malta, right? I have to leave tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Because they give us 72 hours. I don't understand why. Uh, you have to leave. So I decide to go to Malta and uh, 
to spend some time there and to think what I'm going to do um, after I feel I'm recovered. Yeah. So where is your mother now? Where is your sister? Where is your family? My mother and my sister and my niece and nephew still they are in Gaza. They refuse to leave. They decide if we're going to die, let's die in our house. Of course, this is why I'm not happy leaving because I'm worried about my mother. She raised us, seven kids, by herself, get the best education. So I love my mother. And uh, now I'm leaving her. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Then, you know, we were thinking, you know, I'm happy to leave. No. Usually I travel a lot in my life out of Gaza. And always I am happy to get out of Gaza. Even I love Gaza and always come back to it. But the feeling that you are free after you cross Rafah, I feel like I'm free. But this time, I didn't feel I'm free because it's still part of me, still in Gaza. You're saying you usually feel free when you leave Gaza. You don't now, and that's because your family's there? Not at all. I'm telling you, frankly, this is how I feel. This time, I'm feeling sad and angry. You said you feel angry now. At who? Who do you blame for what's happening to your home, to your family? Oh, Israelis and Americans. And really, I'm angry at uh, Mr. Biden. Even though the U.S. got you to safety? Oh, no, 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 not, no, not at all. Take me to safety? No, 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 not at all. When they're helping destruction of your own people, I think American government, even with this situation, they were cheap. When they put us in the hotel and they tell us you have to leave in 72 hours, if you want to go to the States or you have to organize the ticket, what? What? This is American government which is giving Israel $14 billion and they are not capable of taking charters for their own citizen to United States and told me I have to be thankful for the American government? Why? Their duty to protect and to help their own citizen. No, I'm not happy at all. And I'm not happy the way they behave. As for what's next, Qasim wants to see Nadia, his daughter in Canada, and his other kids, but not right away. I need not to go now because I need to recover. He says he needs time, psychologically and physically. He says he wants to protect his kids, to protect Nadia from what he's experienced. You know, it's not talk to her about misery and war and uh, all of these things happening to, to everybody in Gaza. He doesn't want to bring the war to her. He just witnessed so many kids in Gaza who have no choice but to stay and live through it. That was our co-host Mary Louise Kelly talking with Qasem Ali. He's an American citizen from Gaza who was allowed to leave last week. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, a Massachusetts woman who never thought she could cut it in college enrolls later in life. I'm walking across the parking lot with tears down my eyes saying, oh my God, I'm in college. The third act coming up on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. 
The Dow rose a tenth of a percent today. S&P gained two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up three-tenths of a percent. Boston-based vegetarian fast food chain Clover Food Lab has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Court records indicate low sales, high rent, and a lack of funding are affecting Clover's bottom line. The company says COVID changed everything for restaurants, and while Clover's sales have steadily recovered, they're still below pandemic levels. It says it plans to keep operating and emerge from bankruptcy fiscally healthier. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com. And Boston Lyric Opera with La Cenerentola. Cinderella, a new BLO production set in modern-day Boston, November 8th through 12th at the Emerson Cutler Majestic Theater. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Cloudy skies into the evening. They should stay the course tonight. Maybe some showers tonight. Not too much cooler than it is right now. Should be about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds to start. Then sunshine works its way back in before long. Windy and warmer. Could reach the mid-60s tomorrow. Then temperatures falling to the upper 40s by midweek. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moe, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In September, advisors to the Food and Drug Administration determined that a popular decongestant in cold and flu medications does not work. But the FDA hasn't updated the official list of approved over-the-counter drugs in decades. And some medical experts say additional reviews are long overdue. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED explains. Everyone knows that feeling. Your head's pounding, you can't breathe, you're sneezing, so you go to the drugstore. I'm picking remedies from the cold and flu aisle. Proven to shorten colds. Proven might be a stretch, given the news that flooded headlines in September. A key ingredient in the -the over-the-counter cold medicines that so many of us buy, well, it just doesn't work. A unanimous advisory panel to the FDA determined oral phenylephrine, which is found in some Mucinex, DayQuil, and Theraflu products, is no better than a placebo. Half a dozen medical experts interviewed for this story raised questions about other cold and flu drugs as well. Dr. Peter Lurie is the president of the Center for Science in the Public Interest, a consumer watchdog group. They could well be products that are on the market containing ingredients about which people could legitimately have questions and which the agency has had a difficult time acting on because of the elaborateness of the regulatory process. The FDA has been hamstrung for decades by an arcane notice and comment process. Many of the ingredients on store shelves today were grandfathered in more than 50 years ago, when the science backing many drugs did not meet the rigor of today's methodologies. Then in 2020, a new law passed that is designed to make it easier to remove ineffective drugs from the market. This really gives the agency an opportunity to do what I think it had always wanted to do, which was to take a look at at least the most problematic of the drugs currently available. The recent review and vote on oral phenylephrine is the new law's first test case. 
But doctors like Lauren Eggert hope it will be the first of many. She's a pulmonologist at Stanford University. Most of the things out there, antihistamines, cough medicines, none of them have a lot of evidence that they're super effective at improving common cold symptoms. When she wants to vet a cold medication, she uses an online database for doctors called UpToDate, which draws on the latest science. And I'm pulling it up now, and it says, therapies with minimal or uncertain benefits, dextromethorphan, which is in cough syrup, decongestants, expectorants. Those are medications that promise to clear mucus. Zinc and herbal products. All of those are shown to have minimal or uncertain benefits. NPR reached out to the FDA to clarify whether the agency is planning to review some of these drugs. They did not provide comment or make anyone available for an interview after numerous requests. For now, Dr. Eggert recommends taking products with the best evidence, like acetaminophen for pain or nasal sprays to clear the nose. So should you toss out the rest? Not necessarily. You know, there's little harm and people are looking for relief, and I do believe in the placebo effect. The Consumer Healthcare Product Association represents companies that make cold and flu medications. In an email, they defended the FDA's review process, saying it ensures that over-the-counter drugs are safe and effective. But at the end of the day, doctors say drugs may not be the key to getting better. You know, the common cold is something that pretty much needs to run its course. That's Dr. Shalini Lynch. She's a pharmacist at University of California, San Francisco. You want to feel better instantly, but the reality is most viral types of upper respiratory infections, they just take time to go away. She says cozying up on the couch is probably your best bet. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. The last of nine U.S. Army bases originally named for Confederate generals has been renamed. Fort Gordon in Georgia is now Fort Eisenhower. And with that, an entire category of memorials venerating the Confederacy is gone. WUNC's Jay Price has more. The bases were named for men who fought against the very army that uses them and for the right to own slaves. The new names are different. At the first of the nine name changes back in March, Native American dancers and musicians were part of the ceremony as Fort Pickett in Virginia became Fort Barfoot for World War II Medal of Honor recipient Van Barfoot. This will be the first army post in the continental United States bearing the name of a Native American soldier. A month later, nearby Fort Lee was renamed for Lieutenant General Arthur J. Gregg and Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. Today marks the first redesignation in the name of black soldiers. And so it went. Other bases were renamed for the first woman to win the Medal of Honor, a Hispanic Army hero, and now Eisenhower, the general who planned and led the D-Day invasion and later became president. People who did big things for their nation rather than against it. Historians say the renamings are part of a national return to an accurate understanding of the Confederacy. Connor Williams was lead historian for the federal commission that led the renaming process. United States soldiers had gone through this horrible conflict, and they were going to allow the Confederates back into the nation, but they were very clear that the uh, United States Army had defeated treason, and that it was not the North and the South, it was the U.S. Army versus this domestic insurrection. And so by changing these bases, we're just getting back to the reality as it was in 1870 and 1890. 
a time before the organized effort, he says, to portray the Confederate cause as noble and the soldiers in gray as equivalent to those in blue. Around the beginning of the 20th century, groups, notably the United Daughters of the Confederacy, began promoting the lost cause myth that made heroes of Confederate leaders. They paid for hundreds of memorials to bolster their case. Meanwhile, the Army, as it rushed to build bases in World War I, decided to name those in the North for Union officers and those in the South for Confederates, preferably with short names to reduce clerical work. I think the fact that you could even use the names of people who made war against the United States of America for the cause of slavery and white supremacy as military bases shows the success of the propaganda campaign of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other groups. That's Rivka Mazlish, a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. History professor Susan Crane at the University of Arizona cautions against conflating the past with history, which is how people decide to portray the past. Learning history is always the practice of making choices, choices of what we pay attention to. Memorials, she says, are crafted to preserve and highlight a specific memory or meaning. What we think is more significant or less significant, what we think is more important or not. So it becomes a big ethical, moral question. What are we choosing to pay attention to? And how does that reflect our values? Williams says how the nation views the Confederacy and slavery has obviously shifted in recent decades, something he could gauge during the renaming process as he visited base communities. I would give a talk to 75 people, two of them would make very loud and vociferous protests, but 73 would nod their heads or be okay with it. And so now, rather than slave owners, clan leaders, and Confederate army generals, the nation is using the bases to commemorate Americans like Eisenhower, Barfoot, Gregg, and Adams. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, lots of clouds around this evening and overnight tonight. 50-50 chance of rain overnight. Temperatures around the mid-40s. Tomorrow could we could wake up to clouds, but then see the sunshine for the bulk of the day. Temperatures tomorrow in the mid-60s. Wednesday may not even make it to 50 degrees. Should still be sunny, though, and windy once again. This is WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Scott Tong. After the United Auto Workers succeeded in getting big pay raises from the big three automakers, a look at the union and its firebrand leader, Sean Fain. We're thinking together about the core question of the labor movement. How do working class people build the power we need to win what we deserve? That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, Donald Trump has concluded testifying in the civil fraud case accusing the former president of dramatically inflating his net worth and that of his business empire. 
Tensions were high as Trump's unwillingness to follow courtroom protocol forced the judge to admonish Trump early during his testimony. Here's what Trump told reporters at the end of the day. I think it went very well. I think you were there and you listened and you see what scam this is. This is a case that should have never been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. Under questioning about his company's accounting practices, the former president clearly aggravated the judge, who is weighing whether to impose hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and other penalties that could hobble the real estate business that vaulted Trump to prominence. The U.S. Forest Service is proposing changing a rule to store carbon dioxide pollution underneath national forests. NPR's Julia Simon has more on this controversial plan. The much-debated climate solution is called carbon capture and storage. The idea of this tech is to capture planet heating pollution from industry and store it underground. Now the Forest Service may change a rule so CO2 could be stored under the country's national forests. Environmental groups have concerns. CO2 pollution would need to be transported to the forest via pipeline for storage. That may require clearing a lot of trees. If a pipeline breaks, CO2 can displace oxygen. That's hazardous to anything that breathes and could pose a threat for people recreating plus wildlife. Public comments on the proposed rule change are open until January 2nd. Julia Simon, NPR News. Well, stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 34 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up 40. This is NPR. Community composters are popping up in cities across the country to handle food waste, but not all cities welcome that effort. From Harvest Public Media, Eva Tesfai reports. Community composters turn food waste into compost at a local level, hoping to keep that waste out of landfills where it rots and produces methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. But these operations sometimes run into conflicts with neighbors who complain about smells and pests. Brenda Platt of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says composters can present a challenge for cities that don't have relevant zoning rules. Local governments can either say, oh, you've got a problem, or they can help these operations that support their communities to overcome the obstacles. According to the Institute, the number of community composters has nearly doubled over the past six years. For NPR News, I'm Eva Tesfai in Kansas City. President Biden made a stop today in Bear, Delaware, to promote new funding that will go toward 25 passenger rail projects between Boston and Washington, D.C., Biden announced more than $16 billion in new funding for Amtrak. That will help trains run faster, cut delays, and create union jobs. That money comes from Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, one of several accomplishments the president is touting during his re-election campaign. On Wall Street, stocks finished slightly higher today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston city officials are lining up help for the people who had lived in tents and under tarps in the area of Mass Avenue and Melniacas Boulevard before the city pulled down the encampments last week. Dr. Basolo Ojukutu is commissioner of public health in the city. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston, while Mass and Cass was the epicenter of homelessness and drug abuse, the problem is citywide. She cites a state report that shows Boston had a 36 percent increase in opioid-related deaths from 2019 to 2022. We have people who've been deferred from health care because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're really just now recouping that loss. So our goal going forward is to make sure that treatment 
equitable access to treatment is available to all people across the city if that is what they want. The commissioner says case management is critical for people in need who formerly lived at Mass and Cass. A 30-year-old woman has been ordered held without bail today for allegedly killing a woman in July outside the MBTA's Park Street Station in Boston. Alyssa Parch of Weymouth is accused of stabbing and killing 21-year-old Jezriana Shepard of South Boston. Parch was arrested Saturday. She has pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors say the two women had never met in person, but the suspect had sent Shepard antagonistic social media messages prior to attacking her. Young people who've experienced gun violence face increased rates of psychiatric and substance abuse disorders. That's according to a new study out of Mass General Hospital. Researchers compared rates of substance use and mental health diagnoses among thousands of young people who had been affected by gun violence with those who had not. Dr. Zuri Song of MGH helped lead the study. He says the research also documents opioid use among young survivors. We believe that it is likely that some of the opioids used to treat the pain from a firearm injury in the first place subsequently are leading to, uh, to opioid use disorders in the year after. The study also found parents of young gun violence survivors experienced a more than 30 percent increase in psychiatric disorders. Logan Airport is now testing the wastewater from arriving planes for viruses. Boston-based company Ginkgo Bioworks and travel healthcare company Exwell are working with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the testing. They will monitor the wastewater for pathogens such as the flu, RSV, and COVID-19. The program is also being launched at airports in New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arcari Rugs and Carpeting. Fall event through mid-November with antique and modern handmade rugs. Boston, Salem, Framingham, and LandryandArcari.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com. 48 degrees under cloudy skies in the Boston area. We have a cloudy, windy night ahead tonight. Chance of showers should stay right about where it is now in the mid to upper 40s. Tomorrow, it may take a while, but the sunshine should break through the clouds. A lot warmer than today in the mid-60s tomorrow. Gusty winds tonight, tomorrow, and Wednesday as well. Wednesday may only make it to 49 degrees. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Natalie Jones grew up believing she wasn't smart enough to go to college. That changed with her third act. She's one of several people we're profiling who've reinvented themselves later in life in unusual and inspiring ways. Here's WBR's Anthony Brooks on how Jones launched a new chapter as a divorced single parent caring for her family and pursuing her dream. I used to come here with my kids. Late in the afternoon, we would bring supper. It was really peaceful. On a recent afternoon, Natalie Jones looks out over the water in Hull, Massachusetts. The town occupies a narrow spit of land between the bay and the sands of Nantasket Beach. 
the kids were so happy at the beach. I feel like it has some medicinal components to it that feeds my need for being near the ocean. I can't believe how hot it is. I know, really weird. Uh, right to the left. Okay. Natalie Jones, who's 76, long dreamed of living near the beach. Six years ago, she finally moved here into a tidy second-floor condo where she can smell the ocean. Natalie grew up in Boston, a granddaughter of Italian immigrants. In 1969, when she was in the seventh grade, her school asked her to choose if she was college-bound or business-bound. She was just 12 years old. I didn't even know what that meant. I think it was based on your family's economics, really. My mother just said, check off business. So the classes I took in the seventh and eighth grade were not college preparatory. But I never thought that I was smart enough to go to college because my mother, she would always say things like, I'm not very smart, I never went past the eighth grade. After high school, Natalie got a job doing office work. She saved $500 and took off to Europe with a friend. They traveled to Spain, where she met a bartender from England. He was from Liverpool, and he was working in this little town for the summer. I said, ooh, I really like him. It was love at first sight, and I ended up marrying him. Natalie and her husband lived together in Spain for a couple of years and eventually came back to Boston. With no college education, he worked factory jobs and as a hairdresser. And for about 12 years, their life was fine. They had two sons. But by 1986, Natalie says their marriage was in crisis. Money was tight. She and her husband were at odds until he came home one one night and said, I want a divorce. And it was like a kick in the stomach. And we sat down with the kids and we said, you know, mommy and daddy aren't happy living together. And so daddy's going to live somewhere else. But we're always going to be your parents. We're always going to love you. Her husband moved out and the marriage was over. At 41, Natalie was on her own with two sons, ages five and nine, a mortgage and no college degree. And that was it. That must have been a a really tough time for you and and the boys. Yeah. I mean, I never had any self-doubt about surviving. I just felt like somehow we're going to get through this. Natalie worked hard, often juggling three part-time jobs, waitressing, delivering flowers, and office work before picking her kids up at school. I was very concerned about my boys growing up without a good male role model. So she joined a support group for families dealing with divorce and was invited to become a volunteer facilitator. She was good at it, but it wasn't going to pay the bills. So well into her 40s, Natalie pushed through that fear that she wasn't smart enough for college and began an academic journey that took her from Stonehill College to UMass Boston to pursue a degree in human services. I'm walking across the parking lot with tears rolling down my eyes saying, oh my God, I'm in college. And I was just so thrilled to be there. She earned her bachelor's degree in 2001, the same year her younger son graduated from high school. So we had a big graduation party that day for him and for me. I was just beaming, and my mother came and saw me going across the stage, and it was just, it was thrilling. It really was. Natalie went on to earn a master's degree at 59 and became a licensed clinical social worker. That was 16 years ago, and she's still practicing. So what do you love about what you do right now? Uh, 
you know, like I just got a new client that's 93 years old. I love hearing their stories and hearing what they struggle with and then trying to help them see a different way, changing their narrative. Natalie Jones is among lots of older people who are living their third act, either out of choice or necessity or both. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, a Harvard professor of education, is author of the third chapter, Passion, Risk, and Adventure in the 25 Years After 50. She says after she published the book back in 2009, she heard from lots of people like Natalie Jones. Whether folks are highly educated, whether they have high incomes, they find a way of taking this risk and pursuing another way of giving to the world. Oh, look at the egrets. Those are beautiful. In her third act, Natalie Jones realized her dream to live by the ocean, discovered her self-confidence, and launched a new career helping herself and others. You know, there was a poster on the wall of the church that I had belonged to, and it was, faith is when you go out on a limb and you know something's going to catch you. I'm constantly saying to people, you can write your own script. That's what Natalie Jones did. At 76, she says she plans to work well into her 80s, so her third act is far from over. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Anthony will be back next Monday with another third act story. If you have reinvented your life in a surprising way, tell us your story. Email us at thirdactstory at gmail.com. When it comes to keeping our minds sharp, a new study adds to the evidence that physical activity can help slow down cognitive aging. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey. Mary Beth Van Cleve lives in a retirement community in Portland, Oregon, with her wife and their cat, Irene. She started practicing Tai Chi when she was 75 years old. Now she's 86. I guess that means 11 years, doesn't it? Which kind of makes me a newbie, but it's become a very important part of my life. And when I asked her where she practices her Tai Chi forms? I do them everywhere. Tai Chi is a form of martial arts. The practice incorporates a series of movements known as forms that are slow and gentle with a focus on breath. Sometimes described as moving meditation, watching from the outside, it doesn't look like much. But Van Cleve says that's a misconception. Because we are working very hard and there are so many times when I've avoided a fall because of the balance that Tai Chi gives me. The practice helps maintain strength, and it's easy on the joints. And in addition to better balance, new research adds to the evidence that practicing Tai Chi can slow down cognitive decline. Here's study author Dr. Elizabeth Ekstrom, Chief of Geriatrics at Oregon Health and Science University. In Tai Chi, you have to memorize the moves, right? And then you have to be able to execute them in a consistent pattern. So you're getting that physical activity plus having some memory piece to it. As part of the study, about 300 participants in their 70s and older who all had mild memory decline took a 10-minute test to gauge their cognitive function. Then for the next six months, some practiced Tai Chi and some did simple stretching exercises. It turned out those who did Tai Chi twice a week did much better on a follow-up test. What our study showed was that, on average, people in the standard Tai Chi group 
improve their scores by about one and a half. So you've basically just given yourself three extra years. Ekstrom explains that people with mild cognitive decline typically lose about a half point per year on the cognitive test. But by practicing Tai Chi, the study suggests people can significantly slow down cognitive decline. What's new here is that Ekstrom also had participants add something to their practice to make it tougher. For instance, she'd have them spell a word forwards and backwards while they did their Tai Chi moves. So that you're really forcing your brain to think hard while you're also doing this very fluid mind-body movement. It turns out people who tried this form of Tai Chi doubled their improvements on the test score twice as much as with standard Tai Chi. And we've just given you six extra years of cognitive function. So that's a lot. It's not clear whether everyone could benefit so much. And of course, you have to stick with it to see the benefits. If you're able to keep doing this two or three days a week on a routine basis, you're going to get a lot of extra years before you hit that decline into dementia. Hopefully adding quality years to the lifespan. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rappaport Foundation. WBUR's Deborah Becker moderates a discussion on teen mental health with a panel of experts, authors, and medical professionals exploring what schools, parents, and communities can do to help. Wednesday, November 15th at noon. Register for this virtual event at rappaportfoundation.org. This is WBUR. It's going to be a busy night in sports with both the Bruins and Celtics in action. The Bruins will be in Dallas to take on the Stars. Face-off is at 8 p.m. Celtics look to stay unbeaten this season. Tonight, they take on the Timberwolves in Minnesota. The game also gets underway at 8 o'clock tonight. Cloudy overnight tonight. Good chance of rain staying in the mid-40s. Tomorrow may take a while, but the sunshine should break through the clouds. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Maybe you're sitting in your car in traffic right now, or your commute on the T is taking forever, and you're wondering, how do I start biking around Boston? Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. Make sure you have the right gear. You'll want a waterproof jacket for those unexpected storms we're famous for, and as the weather gets colder, layer up with gloves and a thin hat. No matter what, don't forget a helmet. There's a lot of bike lanes and paths all over the Boston area, like along the Charles River or the Minuteman Bikeway or the Southwest Corridor Park. However, there are some places where you're probably going to have to ride in street traffic. And oh yeah, you are still supposed to follow the rules of the road. To get more tips like this about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Cities across the U.S. are struggling to keep up with growing numbers of migrants who need housing and are looking for work. Last week, a delegation of mayors, including those from New York and Chicago, went to the White House to ask President Biden for help. Leading the group was Denver's new mayor, Mike Johnston. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty reports. Denver has spent millions to shelter migrants at rec centers and in hotels for two to four weeks per person or family. They've put up more than 26,000 people in the last year. Snow was still on the ground from the city's first winter storm when police officers arrived at this cluster of tents set up across the street from one of these hotels. Carlos Alberto Jeppe and his wife and two kids traveled for months from Venezuela to get here. Jeppe said they had to move out of the hotel this morning because officials discovered they were hiding a little dog in their room. It's against the rules. His wife, Michelle Santana, says their eight-year-old has been suffering from depression, and this little animal is all that comforts him. The couple wants to give their kids a better life. They just didn't think it would be this hard. We don't have anything, Jeppe tells the officers. I didn't come to beg on the street. I came to work. Inland cities like Denver and Chicago have been struggling to pay for accommodations, like this old hotel, because of the sheer number of people coming to the U.S. In the last year, Customs and Border Patrol agents had over a million more encounters with migrants trying to enter the country than the year before. Denver's mayor, Mike Johnston, knows people are falling through holes in this safety net. Uh, we're keenly aware of that. We don't want kids out there on the streets at any time. We're certainly out on the streets in the cold. And so... We'll continue to focus on how to make sure we can provide the services there um, and how to balance, obviously, the need to be welcoming to newcomers and to make sure we have the resources to pay for other critical city services. The mayors who went to the White House last week didn't get a meeting with the president, but they did speak with his staff. Federal budget negotiations are coming up, and they want Biden to more than triple the cash he's already promised to help the cities pay for shelter and services. You know, we think the current path is unsustainable. Johnston says Denver alone is on track to spend $100 million on this by next year. We're really grateful the president has come out with a supplemental budget that had $1.4 billion for services for cities. We think that number needs to be closer to $5 billion. The mayors are also asking to speed up work authorizations for asylum seekers. Employers need workers, Johnson says, and new arrivals want jobs. Right now, most people who apply for asylum must wait at least six months before they're allowed to work. The nation's immigration laws haven't been updated in decades. John Albert Fernandez also left Venezuela this summer, fleeing corruption. Now he's waiting for a judge to hear his asylum case, but he was booted from the motel the same day as Jeppe. He wants to work. What I have is just $3, he says. He's hoping he'll find a job and a place to settle down. For now, he's out of a place to stay, and he's not sure where he'll go next. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is on target to reopen at the end of 2024. The medieval landmark was ravaged by fire four years ago, and now hundreds of artisans are working to restore Notre Dame. There are stone carvers and iron workers, and there are other workers focused on less visible aspects. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley spent some time with the people restoring the cathedral's acoustics. So my name is Brian Katz. I'm an acoustician, and I work in room acoustics and virtual reality. Katz, an American, is with the French National Scientific Research Center. We meet on the bridge behind Notre Dame, where he watched the cathedral burn on the night of April 15, 2019. And we're just surrounded by masses and masses of people 
all watching the fire in almost complete silence. It was a very eerie feeling. There were gasps when the spire fell. With a gaping hole now in its roof, Katz thought of the acoustics world that had been erased. Then came the plans to rebuild the spire. There were some really wild ideas, such as like a glass ceiling or a park or a pool, at which point we really started wondering how all of that could affect the acoustics, and that's when we became more and more involved in the reconstruction efforts. The decision was made to rebuild the original spire, and Katz was ready. Luckily, he had recorded a concert inside the cathedral in 2013, celebrating its 850th anniversary, so he was able to map out the cathedral's acoustics, calculating how sound reverberates against each interior feature of the building. You can listen to that concert on YouTube. It's called the Ghost Orchestra Project. Kat says it's like a magic carpet ride through the cathedral. We put the recordings of all of the close mic instruments into the computer model, and from that you can fly over the orchestra while it's playing uh, and see, well, hear how the acoustics varies. Katz is not working alone. Mylène Pardouin is a soundscape archaeologist. She says she and Katz are painting audio frescoes. She's recording stone carvers at a site in Burgundy where a medieval castle is being built using methods and tools from the 12th century. It's part of their effort to recapture the original sounds of Notre Dame's construction. Here we have the real gestures and sounds of how these crafts were practiced 800 years ago. Not like in movies where it's all simulated. Here they are carving the stone and all these sounds will be used to reconstitute the historic soundscapes around Notre Dame. Katz says Notre Dame is a living building and as it's evolved over the centuries, so have its acoustics. The Middle Ages before there was all the seating, the floor would have been probably covered with straw or hay to absorb you know, water and mud from people. Then there was the transformation from a religious to a mass tourist site. Carpeting was added in the 1990s to reduce footfall. So the acoustics has evolved quite a lot, uh, and that's what we're kind of interested in. Kat says an important part of the cathedral's future is recapturing the acoustics of its past. I asked him which era of Notre Dame was best suited for singing. Probably at the time when that singing was written. He's talking about polyphonic music from the 12th and 13th centuries. We're assuming that that was probably the best acoustics suited to that music because it was written for that building. The cathedral itself won't reopen until the end of 2024, but you can already plunge into its history and restoration in one of Katz and Pardoen's tours. Bonjour. Ferme les yeux. Whispers of Notre Dame is narrated by an actor playing the cathedral herself. An English language version will soon be available. Maintenant, un ciseau. Notre Dame describes her stones being chiseled and how it takes a full eight seconds for sounds inside her to completely fade away. My acoustics are what make me exceptional, she says. I help songs and prayers rise to the heavens.
Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It was a month ago tomorrow that Hamas militants launched a massive surprise attack on Israel. The war that followed has become the most lethal between Israelis and Palestinians. Coming up on WBUR, a former intelligence officer in Israel tells us how the country's security services could have been caught by surprise. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, House Democrats hope that new Republican Speaker Mike Johnson can help them in the 2024 elections. A lot is coming out about where he stands and how extreme he is. You know, as someone who wanted to overturn the 2020 election, someone who wants to see a nationwide abortion ban. More on the Democrats' plans to tie GOP candidates to Johnson and his far-right policies coming up. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says over 10,000 people have died in just under four weeks of fighting between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports on the grim new marker of violence. The reported toll of 10,000 people now dead in Gaza doesn't distinguish between civilians and Hamas fighters, but health officials in Gaza say at least 4,100 of those are children. The Israeli offensive on Gaza comes in response to the surprise attack by Hamas fighters, who almost a month ago on October 7 infiltrated Israel and killed 1,400 people and took another 240 people hostage. Today, the heads of several major United Nations bodies made a united call for a humanitarian ceasefire, saying that amid the intense Israeli airstrikes, Gaza's population is being, quote, bombed in their homes, shelters, hospitals and places of worship. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. A special counsel team prosecuting former President Donald Trump is urging a judge to reject motions 
dismiss the D.C. case. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports government lawyers accuse Trump of distorting facts in the federal election interference case. Prosecutors say Trump is trying to rewrite history and the four-count felony indictment against him in Washington, D.C. The former president says he has a First Amendment right to talk about fraud in the 2020 election, and the Justice Department's engaged in double jeopardy for charging him even after the Senate failed to convict him after January 6th. But the special counsel team says Trump conducted a, quote, unprecedented campaign of deceit that deserves no First Amendment protection. Prosecutors say Trump stands alone in history for his alleged crimes, as no other president tried to overturn the will of millions of voters. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Negotiators in Abu Dhabi say the World Bank will temporarily manage a fund that pays for climate-related damages in poor countries. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the agreement likely will be signed at a U.N. climate meeting in Dubai that starts later this month. Developing countries say wealthier nations responsible for emitting most of the greenhouse gases should pay them for damages. At the U.N. climate summit in Egypt last year, countries agreed to create that fund. But details for how it should be managed have been controversial. The U.S. was among those arguing the World Bank should manage the multi-billion dollar fund. Poorer countries argued against that, fearing too many hurdles and fees. A State Department official welcomed the new agreement, but said the U.S. is disappointed it leaves out language that donations to the fund are voluntary. Jeff Brady, NPR News. After last week's strong showing, stocks took a bit of a breather today. The U.S. stock indices modestly higher. The Dow's up 34 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Attorney's Office today announced the largest seizure of drugs from a single location in the history of Massachusetts. WBUR's Arena Machavariani reports that officials say the deadly narcotics had a street value of $8 million. The FBI's North Shore Gang Task Force seized more than 200 pounds of fentanyl, methamphetamine, and other drugs from a house in Lynn. Jody Cohen, a special FBI agent in Boston, says some of the drugs were disguised as heart-shaped Valentine's Day candy. She says it's common practice among drug dealers and can be fatal for young people. If you or your loved one are buying pills off the street or getting them from a friend or from anywhere that is not a pharmacy or physician, it might not be what you think it is. Authorities also seized firearms and cash from the scene. Three men are charged in connection with an alleged drug ring. They will appear in federal court next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majawadiani. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is trying to make it easier to discharge patients from hospitals more quickly. The state's largest health insurer is removing the requirement that patients get prior authorization to receive home health care services. That means they can continue treatment at home sooner. The home services include physical and occupational therapy and nurse and social worker visits. The change takes effect January 1st. Blue Cross says the change will eliminate 14,000 authorizations from the health care system. Governor Moore Healy is welcoming members of two new advisory councils. One council is focused on veteran services, the other on women veterans. Healy swore in the 48 new council members at a ceremony at the State House today. It's a collective moral responsibility and duty we owe to support and honor those who sacrifice on our behalf. If we want to support families and seniors, we have to make sure that veterans have access to all the benefits they deserve. 
Earlier this year, Healy created a new cabinet position focused on veterans' affairs. A Boston-based nonprofit news outlet focused on racial equity is relaunching. The Emancipator ended its relationship with the Boston Globe earlier this year for undisclosed reasons. The Commonwealth Beacon reports that the Emancipator is debuting a new website and hiring a new editor. The Emancipator's co-founder, Ibram X. Kendi, came under fire this year for alleged mismanagement of a separate enterprise at Boston University. In the forecast, some drizzle out there now, cloudy, rainy, likely overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s tomorrow could take a while, but the sunshine should eventually break through the clouds. Warmer than today should be in the mid-60s tomorrow. 47 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. 3,000. 3,000, that's the number of Hamas fighters who took part in the unprecedented attack on this country, Israel, one month ago. And that's what the IDF, Israel's military, tells NPR. Again, that number, 3,000 fighters, it puts into perspective the size of the intelligence failure that the October 7th attacks represent for security services here in Israel. And it prompts a question, why didn't they see it coming? Well, that's something we're going to put now to a woman who has held senior posts at the Israeli espionage agency Mossad. Seema Shine was head of research and analysis for Mossad. Today, we met her at a think tank tied to Tel Aviv University, the Institute for National Security Studies, where she works now. Israel has intelligence services that are famous around the world, has the most powerful military in the region. How did you not see it coming? Yeah, <laughs> that's the question. Uh, probably I have only half uh, answers because uh, it's very difficult to, to explain. So let me say a word before. Mm-hmm. All the training that Hamas was doing in order to perform this uh, event was understood and was seen by, by the Israeli intelligence. And the question was, are they doing it in order just to be, uh, you know, you have an army, so you train it. Or it has to be accomplished for a date. And many, many small indications that were very close to the event were seen, but were explained as routine. They're training, they're practicing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And there was a feeling, and here it comes to the conceptual failure, there was a feeling for some years, for many years, I would say, that uh, Hamas, uh, in spite of the fact that it's a terror organization, now it has responsibility for Gaza, and it has two million people, and they have to feed them, they have to uh, educate them and others. So they begin to be like, starting to be more, um, how should I say, more civilian uh, administration or something like that. I want to put this number to you that um, Israel's military has given NPR. They say the number of Hamas fighters who were involved on October 7th was 3,000. So a very large number of people who were read in on some part of this plan for Israeli intelligence not to know. This is coming and it's real. The answer to that is that, uh, and I, I think it's a correct answer, is that they have been training these people for a long time. 
very uh, small number knew that it is going to be translated from a training into an operation. I would uh, guess that it's not more than one hand number of people that knew it. A specific question, and you may or may not be able to answer this, but um, I have seen reports that Israeli intelligence had stopped monitoring, for example, handheld radios used by Hamas because the volume of information was so huge compared to what Israel was getting from it. Is that true? Um, I, I think it's true. I heard it. I, I cannot confirm completely. But it makes but, sense uh, to you? It makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. And um, I've also seen that um, reports that Hamas has intentionally moved a lot of its communications into the tunnels, so mm -hmm. it's harder to eavesdrop on, even if you were trying. <laughs> we know that we have, to, have been trying because there was an operation some years ago that was revealed by Hamas, and this was the the uh, aim of this operation. So we know it, that Israel tried to get to that. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it was much more difficult. You said there was no sense of urgency October 6th on the side of Israel. And I wonder, what about now? I reported on the CIA in the days and years after 9-11. And a large organization, I obviously can't speak for everyone, but I think fair to say there was a sense of being stunned, but then also a sense of the gloves come off. As you speak to former colleagues, is, is that a similar conversation unfolding? First of all, there is a feeling of uh, we have to perform much better now because of the failure. The problem is that we have, uh, first of all, we are not concentrating only on one border on Gaza. We have the northern border, which is a huge, huge problem. Much You're talking about Lebanon. Lebanon and Hezbollah, exactly. By any means, it's much more than, than Hamas. More soldiers, more equipped, better equipped, uh, precise missiles, all these things. So we have a huge problem there. And I think the uh, intelligence as well as, as the army are very much uh, stretched on these two fronts. You know, we had a, a, an event with from Yemen, not one, many others. But uh, I don't know how these people can, um, how they sleep at night because it's... Uh, it's not by chance that you mentioned 9-11. It's such a traumatic feeling in Israel. In a way, it's more than that, because um, at the end of the day, 9-11 was an event, ter terrible one, terrible, terrible, but it started and, and fi was finished. In, here, it doesn't, it doesn't finish. Last thing, you know, I came to see you today because of your vast national security experience, but I want people to know you're also a grandmother. Um, I don't know how old your grandkids are, but I wonder how you're talking to them about this moment, what your hopes are for them as you yeah. look at the future of this yeah. country. Um, yeah, that's the only issue that brings tears in my eyes because um, it's really very difficult. Now we are trying for the, since my granddaughters are small, we are trying to make it like um, a play. There is a there is a, um, an alarm, a siren. So we go now inside the shelter. When the air raid sirens yeah, go, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. We go to into the but but um, you know it's it could be a play during the day, but not during the nights when they are asleep, and they understand that something is happening. If their parents not I being their parents, I take him them from the beds and go to the shelter. They understand that it's something different. Sima Shine, thank you. Thank you.
She is a former senior official at Mossad and on Israel's National Security Council and now runs the Iran desk here at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. A year from now, Americans will head to the polls and decide control of the House of Representatives. Newly elected Republican Speaker Mike Johnson will be expected to raise millions and drive the strategy that will ensure the GOP retains its majority in 2024. But Democrats already say Johnson's record will be an issue in the election. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Democrats see an opportunity to make Speaker Mike Johnson a central part of their strategy to flip control of the House. We may have a new face, um, but the extremism is still there. In fact, he may be even more extreme. That's Susan Del Bene, the head of the House Democrats' campaign committee. She says voters may not know who Johnson is, but thinks the more people learn, the more it could be a liability for Republicans in swing districts across the country. So while he may be unknown to folks. I think a lot is coming out every day about where he stands and how extreme he is. You know, as someone who wanted to overturn the 2020 election, someone who wants to see a nationwide abortion ban, someone who wants to cut Social Security and Medicare. Republicans ran ads for years linking vulnerable Democrats to then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's San Francisco values are wrong for America. But GOP strategist Ken Spain says it's hard for Democrats to do that for Johnson. He is an unknown quantity to the vast majority of American voters. He's less defined and therefore is not a political vulnerability, at least not yet. Spain says the new speaker faces pressure to avoid any hint of the drama that led to his election. The one way the speaker can become a political vulnerability is if the majority cannot function. And we've already gotten a taste of that over the course of the last several weeks. If that continues to spill into 2024, it could become incredibly problematic. Spain says previous GOP speakers had much closer ties to CEOs. That was a key asset in raising big dollars. But Johnson seems to have close ties with the grassroots. The speaker raised $1 million in just the first weekend after he won the gavel. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy raised about $500 million in the last election. John Duarte, who represents a competitive district in California, says Johnson has big shoes to fill. Kevin McCarthy was by far the king of Republican fundraising. I don't know that we can expect the same out of Mike Johnson right away, but he's done a great job. His, his acceptance speech, his interviews, I mean, he's a very likable guy. The battle for the House will take place in roughly 60 of the 435 House districts. Mike Garcia is another California Republican in a top-tier race, and he admits Johnson is further to the right than he is. He's more conservative than, than many are in the conference. Um, so his personal positions on the things don't matter as much as what does the legislative uh, agenda look like and, and what are the things that we're going to be bringing to the floor. Nebraska Congressman Don Bacon, a moderate, says what a lot of other centrists say. They downplay Johnson's positions on issues, but say his tone will connect with voters. His message is unifying, it's positive, it's not demonizing the other side. Another vulnerable Republican, Mark Molinaro from New York, says Johnson says his new role as speaker means he will include input from more moderates in deciding the agenda. You know, we, we're going to have differences, but what he assured me and, and what was very convincing for me is that members like me and voices like those I represent will be at the table as we develop policy, and that's what's important. But Del Bene says Democrats want to make sure voters don't see Johnson as a kinder, softer, more moderate speaker. 
They'll spend the next year trying to paint him and every Republican as an extremist. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Monday evening. Last week on Wall Street, the street had its best week of the year, and today it held on to its gains. The Dow rose a tenth of a percent, SP gained two tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ picked up three tenths of a percent. Sullivan Tire and Auto Services, nearly 1,500 employees now own the company. The Sullivan family announced the change in business ownership to employees Friday. Board Vice Chair and Marketing uh, President of Marketing Paul Sullivan described the moment. He says he can't think of better stewards to carry the brand forward. Boston-based vegetarian fast food chain Clover Food Lab has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Court records indicate low sales, high rent, and a lack of funding are affecting Clover's bottom line. The company says COVID changed everything for restaurants, and while uh, Clover's sales have steadily recovered, they're still below pandemic levels. It says it plans to keep operating and emerge from bankruptcy fiscally healthier. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. A cloudy, damp night and overnight could have some steadier showers. Temperatures holding steady to where they are now, about 47 degrees. Then for tomorrow, clouds to start. Sunshine before long, windy and warmer. Temperatures should reach the mid-60s. 47 now in Boston at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Abortion rights has been on the ballot in seven states since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. In each instance, anti-abortion groups lost. Voters in Ohio are now considering an amendment that could enshrine abortion and other reproductive rights into the state's constitution. Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls has the story. It's hard to spend much time in Ohio these days without hearing two words. Extreme or radical. Radical amendment. Extreme. Extreme abortion ban. Too extreme and radical. Supporters of reproductive rights use those words to describe a six-week ban on abortion that's on hold by courts. Opponents use those words when they talk about the proposed amendment. Ohio was once considered a bellwether state, but after voting for former President Donald Trump twice and consistently a 
electing Republicans to control the legislature and the Ohio Supreme Court, the Buckeye State is solidly red these days. Still, polls consistently show somewhere around 56% of Ohioans support at least some abortion rights. In recent weeks, the Ohio State House has been ground zero for rallies. Supporters say it's a decision that should be made by people, not politicians. Opponents, including church leaders, say the government does have a role. They've been gathering for protests, prayers, and praise. Tens of millions have been spent on ads for the amendment, including one featuring Beth and Kyle Long, a Columbus couple who went to Pennsylvania for an abortion for a complicated pregnancy. They spoke to NPR shortly after arriving in pouring rain to cast a vote for the amendment during the month of early in-person voting. I think it's important for us to make sure that Nobody else here in Ohio has to go through what we went through. Republican Governor Mike DeWine and his wife Fran appeared in an ad against the amendment. Issue one is just not right for Ohio. Issue one just goes too far. Some of the most controversial action being taken is inside the state house. In August, Republican lawmakers put a measure before voters that would make it harder to amend Ohio's constitution. It failed. Then the Ohio Ballot Board, controlled by Republicans who oppose abortion rights, approved contentious summary language that voters will see on the ballot. It's led by Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who's running in the GOP primary for Senate next year. That language omitted a part about birth control and changed the word fetus to unborn child. I voted three to two. The motion carries and the language is approved for... Opponents sued. The Republican-dominated Ohio Supreme Court, which includes justices who are openly against abortion rights, allowed those changes to stand. Recently, the governor promised voters if they reject this amendment, Republicans would come up with an exception for rape and incest in Ohio's abortion ban that he signed into law in 2019. The vast majority of people in Ohio feel that there needs to be an exception for rape and incest. So that certainly will be part of what together we would all come up with if this is defeated. But that's a tough sell to supporters of the amendment, like Lauren Blavelt with Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights. The governor and other politicians have had a decade to have a conversation about what would be reasonable. The former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, says DeWine's promise shows his desperation, but might be having an impact. I do think it's closer overall because I think there's been a lot of disinformation, a lot of this talk about uh, that you hear from the governor and others about it being too much. I think that's actually having some impact. Legislative leaders say regardless of what happens on Tuesday, they'll likely take some other actions to change Ohio's abortion policy in the future, including the possibility of another constitutional amendment. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Laura Eshelman. In 2012, Eshelman was in the middle of a mental health spiral. The love of her life had just dumped her, and she was struggling with an eating disorder. To top it all off, she was having trouble finding work. 
One day, after being rejected for yet another job, she encountered an unexpected unsung hero. I was feeling pretty down and decided to go to the Whole Foods across the street. As I was crossing the street, I noticed a man on the street corner. He was actually in the middle of asking a passerby for change who didn't so much as acknowledge his existence. And as I approached, he turned his attention to me and again asked if he could have a little bit of money. I don't remember what my response was to him, and I'm glad that I don't remember, because what I do recall is whatever I said was very unkind and harsh, something to the tune of, leave me the hell alone, I don't have anything to give you, just bug off. With that, I sauntered into the grocery store and began perusing the aisles but the interaction had left me a little distracted and rattled for reasons I couldn't quite put my finger on until the realization of how rude and awful I had been to this person hit me like an anvil. I remember thinking, what the hell have you become? Who are you? I dropped everything I was doing and left the store quickly in the hopes that the man was still on the corner, which he was. And I hustled over to him, began apologizing profusely and dug out some change that had, of course, been at the bottom of my pocket the whole time. And as I was handing him the change, he took my hand in both of his hands. I remember they were very large and rough and it took me by surprise, actually. And he said, hey, it's gonna be okay. And for the first time in a long time, I felt like somebody was seeing my own pain and I started to cry. We just stood there for a few more moments and I thanked him and we parted ways. That moment on the street was one of few glimmers in that extremely dark period of my life. That was Laura Eshelman of Asheville, North Carolina. Laura says she eventually checked herself into a program to treat her eating disorder and started rebuilding her life. She wishes that she could thank her unsung hero for being so kind. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. And if you are in psychological distress, whether from an eating disorder or for any other reason, you can dial 988 to speak with counselors at the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Members of a Plymouth family who've been trapped in Gaza have finally been able to leave the territory, according to a family member this evening. Azam and Sana Shafi of Plymouth and their three children, who are 2, 10, and 12 years old, were visiting family in Gaza when the war began a month ago tomorrow. The brother of Hazem is Hani Shafi. He tells us the family crossed over into Egypt earlier today. They're now awaiting travel documents that will take them to Cairo, Egypt, and eventually 
home to Plymouth. Stay tuned to WBR this evening and tomorrow morning for more on their story. In the forecast, cloudy, rainy overnight tonight, staying in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine eventually, warmer than today. Temperatures in the mid-60s, gusty winds through the stretch. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com.